We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. All right, how's it going? My name's Matt Barr. That was Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and you are listening to Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between the outdoors, action sports, and activism. Now, in each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're passionate about, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved, and the rewards that follow. This episode, I'm speaking to Ryan Gellert, who last year was made CEO of Patagonia, replacing Rose Macario and taking charge at a critical point in the company's history. Let's do a quick bio of Ryan so you can get some background. He took the role following a successful six-year stint in charge of Patagonia in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, during which he was instrumental in helping the brand attain its leadership position in the European outdoor and environmental communities. He's very hands-on involved with projects such as Save the Blue Heart of Europe and Patagonia Action Works, for example. Before that, he enjoyed a lengthy and successful career at Black Diamond, which we discussed. And yeah, as with every episode of Type 2, we did delve into his backstory and personal history. So I'll leave that there because obviously in the main, what I was really, really interested in finding out is how he's settling into this new role and what he hopes to achieve while he sat in the chair because obviously for better or worse this position fulfills a certain totemic role in the outdoor and environmental worlds and how Ryan is going to use his tenure is going to say a lot about Patagonia the company and this is what I was interested in finding out how is he going to use this power and position what does he stand for and by extension what does Patagonia in 2021 stand for these are the topics I was interested in exploring and which I'm happy to say Ryan was equally enthusiastic in discussing. Now, I've got a Ryan story, actually. When we were first planning Type 2, I spent a bit of time in Amsterdam with the team developing the idea, um, and when I was back there after the first couple of episodes came out, I was making myself a cup of tea in the canteen, and this friendly bloke comes up to me and says, hey, I really like the podcast, love looking sideways, think Type 2's got off to a great start, keep it up. Walked off with my tea, went and saw my friends in the Patagonia marketing department who I was working with and say, hey, some guy called Ryan was just really nice about the podcast, at which, of course, the penny dropped. So when I saw that this same friendly, unassuming, humble person was Patagonia's new boss, basically, I decided to give him a shout to see if he was up for coming on Type 2 to talk about the themes I just outlined and his take on Patagonia's position as we all reflect upon 12 months that have changed the world. Very, very interesting and wide-ranging conversation, this one. Takes in some of the biggest themes of all while also relating them to the individual and also Ryan's, at times, very, very personal story. Extremely grateful to Ryan, who's obviously a busy fella, and his team for their help in setting this episode up. Hope you enjoy it. Here's me and Ryan. How you doing? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. It's good to be here with you. Um, Doing well, all things considered. So you're in Ventura. Um, when did you get that? I got over here December 30th, actually. So right before the new year started, um, after six years in Amsterdam. So um, it's definitely a big move. Yeah, because you got the role, obviously, earlier last year, right? 
and then but and, and I imagine in, under normal circumstances the plan would have been to move to Ventura straight away but you had to stay in Amsterdam because of COVID right? Yeah that's the way it worked out and I even thought about sticking around in Amsterdam longer um, you know, it was definitely kind of a we felt like with two young kids we had a window which was the end of or the, the middle of the school year um, and, and we we debated it but uh, we we sprung free and uh, it was pretty pretty hairy little move but um, things have worked out okay. Is this is this like everybody? Is this like the least you've traveled probably in your entire adult life? I imagine the last year. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. I mean, literally, not just not traveling. I mean, almost. You know, I go days without leaving my house. To be honest with you, and um, and it was the same in Amsterdam during during COVID. You know, sometimes I I think I had a bike like everybody in Amsterdam it was pretty much all I used to get around. And I think there were weeks where it was just chained to the tree in front of my house, didn't go anywhere. And it sort of feels the same way here in Ventura. Um, so yeah, it's strange times, but pretty, I think some pretty good lessons wrapped up in all that certainly slow some things down. And for me personally, a lot more time with, with my kids and my family. So that's been nice. Yeah. It's quite a common theme, isn't it? I think, you know, this enforced downtime has, has made everybody kind of reflect a little bit. Any, anything that you could expand upon that? Well, I think, I think in a, Personally, I think it's been, you know, as I said, just just getting time to to hang out with my kids. I mean, I think back, you know, my son is nine and my daughter just turned six. And I think back to the to the whole course of their lives. And there have been there have been extended windows where either I'm not around, I'm traveling somewhere or I am around and I don't see them at all. Um, I'm up and out before they wake up and then I'm back after they go to bed. And, you know, just flipping that is um, it's just been such a gift, I think, for us as a business you know, there's a parallel there. I think things have been moving so quickly for a bunch of years. I think this, this past year has really taught us a lot of valuable lessons. And I think, you know, in, in pretty simple form, I think it's just forced us to kind of take a deep breath and really think deeply about what's most important to us. And, you know, it may sound simple, but that, that, I think that was something we knew we needed to do for a long time, but until it was kind of forced upon us, it was difficult to make the space for it. Have those issues that you, that you feel you're reflecting upon now as a business have they were those issues that were you were aware of and that you were cognizant of before covid or has covid kind of been the been the ground for that thinking to flourish if you like i think it's a little bit of both but i think it's far more the former i think you know it's so and you know again i think this is there's a parallel here between personal life and, and business life but you know, sometimes things are just moving so quickly. You stop, you get those moments of clarity and you say, you know, I'm, I, I need to spend more time focused on this and this and this. I need to get better at this. And then it's just, you know, you wake up the next morning and it feels like you're right back in the in the sprint. And so I think I think the vast majority of, of what we've kind of recommitted to and thought pretty deeply about this year are things that, you know, we'd been thinking about previously. Um, but I think, well, I'll give you a, an example. It's not maybe the best one, but it's an interesting one. You know, we have forever around here at Patagonia debated whether we could justify paid advertising on Facebook and Instagram um, amongst, you know, particularly those two platforms amongst many on social media. And and we had had this really uncomfortable relationship with those two platforms. Um, the reasons why we were uncomfortable with them are pretty well documented, I think, for so many of us which is just the amount of hate speech and misinformation they trade in. Um, and, but, you know, they're awfully good at what they do and what they do for us is help us connect with people. And some of that is on behalf of our business, but a lot of it's on behalf of our mission and the work that we want to do. And even, you know, through the grantees that we work with people on the front lines um, working to save our home planet. And, 
And so, you know, it was always super difficult to say, should we walk away from this? And if we do, how are we going to navigate that? How are we going to continue to communicate and connect? And then the Stop Hate for, for Profit campaign happened last July, where a bunch of companies came together on the heels of George Floyd's murder. And when things were just boiling over here in the U.S. specifically during the tail end of the Trump administration. And so a bunch of companies agreed to just stop all paid advertising for a month. And for us, you know, we that that sort of forced um, a decision on this, but we didn't go back to paid advertising on Facebook and Instagram at the end of July. We've never gone back. And and I think that that clarity, I'm not sure it would have been as easily reached, um, you know, at the pace we were moving going into COVID. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you touch upon the, the kind of conundrum that you face as a company in a lot of ways, don't you? Like how much you stand alone and uh, and also participate to communicate your message you know that i mean for for a company like patagonia that's obviously a question i imagine you must be constantly grappling with really like where where you you know where you kind of cite that boundary if you like you know i i've heard it said uh internally before you know life at patagonia is like swimming in a sea of contradictions every day it's it's trying to figure out how you use a business a business that puts product into the world that people may want, but they don't need um, and how you use that business and weaponize that business, not just the core business itself and the product we make. That's a, that's a, certainly a key part of it, but our voice and our people and our community and our money and our convening power and all these other things to deliver on our mission, which is we're in business to save our home planet. And how, how does that work? How do you justify that the greater good is served by doing these things? And that's, you know, you could you could throw lob some hard questions about this or that and the impact that we have and they'd all be fair but at the end of the day we wrestle with that every single day and i think that the 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 commitment to wrestling with those things i think is ultimately what um you know what sort of fueled us for 48 years i mean it's a bit of a gimme that though isn't it you know to sort of just oh well you know you do this and you know you trade in on these platforms and you've got presence in this country with a bad human rights record or whatever like but and and that is certainly even on the macro scale, as we're discussing, or the micro scale, like when it's an individual's choices, that accusation of hypocrisy is just is is an obvious thing to level at somebody who's attempting to 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 have an examined way of living or an examined way of doing business. I'm not really interested in that. I'm just interested in the question of of like how because you know that's I, I just think that's like the, the the landscape, isn't it, that we're in now? You know. The interesting thing is how you cope with those contradictions and how you still make a positive impact, you know, and, and and how you listen and how you evolve and how you take that on board. Because as you say, like, God, that just doesn't apply to Patagonia, does it? That applies to every single one of us. You know, like we all, we're all grappling with those contradictions. You know, I think that, uh, I think first of all, you know, just being deeply committed to leading and examine life and really thinking about those things. And just making sure that you really feel like, and I think for yourself, first and foremost, before you can kind of, you know, I think even earn the right to try to convince others, is just be really intellectually honest with yourself about that. And I think that, you know, the more we learn, and it's what I always find funny about these sort of broad catchphrases like sustainability, you know, we're often introduced as the leaders in sustainability. It's like, we've been at this for 48 years. I don't think we're a truly sustainable company. You know, if anything, we're a responsible one because we wake up every day 
wrestling with the next set of challenges and questions, the unknown unknowns um, that have revealed themselves from the work we did yesterday. And and I think that that's, that's the journey. I think it's an important one for, for individuals. I think it's a critical one for business. And, you know, I think it's an imperfect one by definition. I mean, I've got a couple of questions to ask you personally about that. But one thing I did want to ask you about, you know, you mentioned the conversation last year, um, especially around Black Lives Matter in the States. And that was one area where, you know, Patagonia has been considered to be a leader in, as you mentioned, for example, the field of sustainability, generally in the field of activism, let's just call it that in our world. But that was one example where the company did face accusations of perhaps not being on the front foot, not leading in the right way. Um, do you think those accusations were fair? Like, I, I know you obviously did the acknowledgement to, to address those directly. Um, how, how do you look at that now when, when you look back at that? I mean, we're, we're about six to seven months le- you know, later. Obviously, you're, you know, you're quite f- a few months into the role. Um, how are you looking at that, that kind of positioning and perception of Patagonia now? Well, I think that, um, first of all, just for context on how I look at our role in the world as it relates to providing leadership or impact on anything, I, you know, I think one of the words we need to always embrace is, is humility. And um, so I, I think, you know, I, it's always made me really uncomfortable, you know, going back and, and, and repeating what I said a minute ago, just to be introduced in any kind of context on behalf of Patagonia is this leader on topic of the topic of sustainability, because I think it's, I think it's, it gives us more credit than we deserve. I think we're incredibly committed to thinking about these issues. I think that no one candidly expects more from us than we do of ourselves. And when I think about the time, you know, specifically last summer and the the, the events that you're referencing with Black Lives Matter, with George Floyd's murder, I think some of the criticism that was leveled at us was really fair. Um, I think, to be honest with you, criticism that comes at us at any time that's well-intentioned I think is is fair and appreciated. I think when people are telling you you're the best at this and the best at that, you know, occasionally it feels nice, but it doesn't teach you anything. Um, and I think the opposite, particularly again, when it's well-intentioned and there's a lot of the opposite out there as, as we all know, um, you know, I think those are really, that's really instructive. I think what, what I feel like we've learned is that, you know, we've kind of been head down trying to solve problems within our supply chain over our entire history, trying to scale those solutions, anything we figure out, you know, our next sort of goal beyond, you know, making changes in our own supply chain is scaling those solutions outside the four walls of Patagonia. And we've been supporting activists on the front lines of the environmental crisis, working on behalf of clean air and clean water and clean soil. And we've been wading more directly into activism ourselves. That's kind of where our focus has been. And I think, it, you know, I think there's a little bit of tunnel vision that's come from that. And I think that the events of last summer, I think, really reminded us. And I think the intersection with COVID was was interesting as well, that we've we've moved from a world where you're dealing with one crisis at a time. And not only in this last year have we been dealing with overlapping crises. I think that's the future. I mean, I think we have permanently exited a period that felt really familiar to me, one that I had, you know, kind of my whole life had been in. It's like, all right, well, here's a big issue. What do we, how, how do we think about that? I think I think the climate and ecological crisis has, has moved us out of that. I think the biggest challenge we face as humans is, I think, well, two of them. One is the environmental crisis and the other is tribalism. And I think tribalism is compromising our ability to navigate the first. And so I think the lessons we learned last summer, I think, um, you know, personally, I think it were really humbling because I think for me personally, what I learned is, you know, it's not enough 
to be educating yourself on these issues. It's not enough to have a point of view that you think is really progressive. That's not action. That's just, you know, a set of beliefs and, and like anything, yeah, it's nice, but it doesn't accomplish anything. And so I feel like it's it's been a really humbling and hard set of lessons in understanding what our obligation is and becoming a truly anti-racist company. Um, I think it's made us better. I think we've thought deeply about it. We've tried to match that thinking with action. And we focused our action on this overwhelmingly internally to start because I think we have got to build the credibility with ourselves internally and with our employees before, you know, I think we have the right to be projecting externally on this. But, you know, we we intend to participate in that conversation as well and try to work at, at the nexus of environmental and social justice. The tribalism point is a really interesting one and also something I'm quite fascinated by right now. Because obviously we live in a, you know, almost world of weaponized tribalism, isn't it? You know, at the moment, do you do you see that as the status quo? Like that, like almost it's almost like a human nature question, really. But I just, I just as you raise it as like a particular issue right now, could you expand upon what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think again, I don't want to put all the the problems that we face at the at the feet of social media, but I certainly think they've been the gas on the fire on this one. I think tribalism is as old as humanity. I think uh, social media has just really taken something, tapped into it, monetized it, and and spread it, and created a, a forum for it to be much more impactful, sometimes positively, often negatively. I think that, you know, I think this notion, this basic need to be a part of a tribe as humans, I think is, you know, it's it's sort of agnostic. It's neither good nor bad. I think the, the challenge and the opportunity and certainly what we're constantly trying to unlock is how you use that as a force for good. How do you figure out what unites people and how do you, you know, unite them, get them inspired and excited and engaged with something? And then how do you focus that energy towards solutions? That is almost like the work of a brand like Patagonia in a way, isn't it? You know, like how you how you harness that. The word agnostics really on point, actually, because yeah, it, it's it's difficult not to judge it now, but it can be such a force for good, and that's obviously one of the things that you really try to tap into, which I guess is your point, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I'll make a, a slightly different point because it's something I talk about all the time, and I just I, this is I think really important for us, and it's and it's this I think. You know, I guess let me step back and say this. I think that the climate and ecological crisis is an existential threat. I think it's one of our own creation as humans. I think that it is going to, it arguably the biggest challenge we've ever faced and interestingly one of our own creation. And I think that we've got a decade or less to stabilize our climate and mitigate the worst impacts of, of what we've created. That, that, that's, you know, I state all that because it's just foundational to how I see the world and how I see our place in it. And so if you believe those things, and your mission is we're in business, save our home planet. And those are eight empty words until we, you know, breathe some life into them. And so, you know, our job every day is to figure out how we live up to that. And I think that, um, you know, it's no longer okay for us to sit around and, and think about what's most important to us, what we, what we like, the topics we want to support. I think we have got a responsibility to figure out how we're going to impact those things. And I think for us to impact them, We've got to really be clear with ourselves about what are we uniquely qualified to do? So not just what we believe, but what are we uniquely qualified to do? And I think one of the things we're pretty good at is storytelling. Um, I think we can mobilize community. I think it's something that, you know, we've we've developed that muscle over our 48 year history. And I think that that's really needed right now. And so, 
you know, it's not the only tool in our toolbox, but, you know, each time we have a conversation and we say, well, we want to do this and this and this and this and this, it becomes this process where soon you look up at a, at a, at a, a whiteboard and it's just covered with things we want to do. And I don't, I, I don't think that serves us well. I think we've got to be able to distill it down and focus and say, okay, what, what can we do better than others? What's our unique point of view or thing that we can bring to this? And to be honest with you, you know, force a parallel here. I think it's one of the big shortcomings of the environmental movement is that there's this sense that everybody should show up and engage the same way. Everybody should protest. Everybody should recycle. Everybody should stop eating meat. Everybody should do this. And I think it fails to really account for the unique gifts and contributions that individuals can make. And, um, you know, it's one of them jumping all over the place, but it's one of the, the great things I think about Patagonia Action Works and this platform we develop, particularly the skilled volunteering piece, because it allows people to tap into to work on in support of the issues most important to them by bringing what is unique to them, their unique gifts. If you're an accountant, help out an organization that needs some help with their bookkeeping. If you're a graphic designer, help an organization working on clean rivers or river restoration or air pollution, if that's your issue in, in the community you live in to develop a new logo or a campaign. And so I think that's, that, that's I think, a little bit more how we need to think both individually and, and certainly we as, we as Patagonia. Yeah, it's a real theme of type two, the in- inclusivity the importance of it you know not just trying to yeah like be too didactic in the way that you try to make people act you know like and like you say like give people the chance to fulfill their own role like it is well you know when you look at successful activism successful campaigns successful brands whatever you know like from through this lens that that's the common theme isn't it you know that's what you keep coming back to on on that point i'm really interested in you know, obviously the role that you've taken on is is totemic in the industry. Um, and I'm very interested in that. And I'm very interested, you know, you've, you've already, you know, outlined a little bit of, you know, your beliefs and the way that you want to conduct yourself in this role. But obviously you recognized the totemic nature of the, of the role and, and the almost like the public facing importance of it in the industry. Um, could you, was that something that you that you had a plan for? If that's not too um, abstract a question, was that was that something that you were aware of and that you knew you were going to have to to almost have a philosophy to bring to this as as a person and as a leader of the company? Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting question, and I, I you know I just sort of rock back anytime I'm sort of confronted with this notion of 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 the significance of the role and, and the responsibility at times that can come with it. And, and, and I don't mean that like, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to dodge it or run from it. I just, I think that I just try to take a really humble approach to it. And so I want us as Patagonia to get the, ver- to do the very best that we can do in living up to our lofty ambitions of ourselves. And, you know, to be honest with you, I kind of approach my own life that way. I mean, I, I'm motivated and, and I'm energized by trying to be useful. Um, I like to stay active and I like to try to do something that I think is positive. And, and that's, you know, about as simple a way to describe it as, as, as I can. And I think in essence, that's Patagonia as well. It's just in the face of long odds, show up every day and bring the best creative solutions that you've got and think really holistically and really creatively 
about how we can make a difference on the issues most important to us. And so, again, I, I recognize these are really simple ideas, but I think that they cut right to the heart of, you know, how I think about things and how I think we need to. I think for us, um, you know, we've done some of our best work in the face of some of our biggest challenges. And I think back to, you know, the mid 90s when we came to understand the impact of conventionally grown cotton and Yvonne made the bold decision at the time where the business was really small and a large, large percentage of what we made was made with cotton, all of which was conventionally grown. We came to understand the impact of that. And he gave the company 18 months to switch to 100% organic cotton, which, you know, almost put the, the company out of business. Um, I think about on the heels of the 2016 presidential election when an avowed climate denier became president of the United States on a platform of rolling back, you know, commitments that we had made as a country on behalf of, you know, the environment. But we responded by donating 100% of our revenue on Black Friday to the same grassroots organizations that we support through our, our longtime commitment to 1% for the planet. Or, you know, when, when, um, this year's presidential election came up and and what was at risk was four more years of what we had seen and and you know it could have been i think it could have been a lot worse the second four could have been a lot more damaging than the, the four that preceded it and so we rallied and worked with um you know a small group of companies that became a community of two thousand companies that prioritized through a campaign called time to vote the need to give employees access to voting um, throughout the companies and so I think that we've always kind of stepped in there and done our best work when the odds were longest. And I think right now, as we look at the climate and ecological crisis, there is no bigger challenge. And so I think one of the big responsibilities that we have is figuring out what we're going to do about it. And, you know, it, it's interesting when I think about 2020 and, you know, you ask the questions about, um, you know, some of the, the hard lessons we've learned through Black Lives Matters and, and on the heels of George Floyd's murder, also navigating a pandemic and the economic uncertainty um, that we've dealt with in this last year, all with the climate and ecological crisis in the background. You know, I look back at 2020, by any traditional business metric, it was not our finest year. And I think you could pull 100% of Patagonia employees around the world. I don't think anybody would tell you it was our funnest year either. But I truly look back at that year, and I think it may prove to be our most important, if not one of our most important years in our history. And it's because the lessons we've learned, and I think it's, you know, we, we led a project or a process called Reimagine, where we engaged all of our employees around the world and asked them four simple questions. And they're really focused on how can we be more impactful? How can we get better at doing what we do? And I think that process has really fueled some deep thinking about what the next chapter is going to look like. And so that's, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at in the journey. Just the other quick thing I'll say is we have always viewed Patagonia as this experiment in doing business differently. And we've always thought about being in business 100 years out into the future. You know, this is our 48th year. So we're sort of at the at the middle of this experiment. And I think it's it's high time that we kind of take stock of where we are, where the world is and, and how we can have an impact on that. I understand what you what you're saying about you know your own reaction to kind of the phrasing that I used and that and that positioning, but I I do think that that is a thing, isn't it? You know, like the idea that that, that this role is like a figurehead in the industry, and you can discern. You know, I've obviously in researching this, I've kind of looked into some of the other interviews you've been doing and some of the. You can definitely discern themes from that are obviously important to you. Or, you know, even from our short conversation so far, transparency is obviously like hugely important to you humility seems to be really important and 
it does feel like that you must have to consciously have a vision and you've just described that the work that you've been doing and 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 the way that you're that you're leading that could you could you describe a a direction that you'd like to take the company given given the things that we've been talking about and i'm not obviously asking you to like expand a manifesto but but it but it is obviously an interesting question yeah i think it's a, i think it is a really good question i think for me you know i think the next chapter for patagonia is going to be focused totally on maximizing impact and uh, in, in the face of the climate and ecological crisis and trying to do that at the intersection with with social and racial justice at every opportunity i think the i think the single biggest impact that we can have and i think the boldest sort of vision of patagonia is is really helping to change capitalism. And, you know, I absolutely believe that our system of governance, which I would call capitalism, not democracy or anything else, and I would almost call it our religion as well, is is needs reform, period. And I am naive enough to believe that Patagonia can have an impact on that. And so I think that, you know, again, I won't repeat the whole framework, but if you believe that we are as humans at the place that we are, I think we need every lever. And I think government government needs to step up and do what government was founded to do, which was help us solve our biggest problems. I think individuals in their role as part of civil society need to engage and hold government to task. I also think they need to make changes in their personal lives where they can. And I think business, which is you know almost over the history of business as a concept, is, is sought to dodge its responsibility for anything other than maximizing shareholder wealth. And needs needs to just move past that conversation. We've lost we've we've lost the the right to even engage in that philosophical debate. We need to step up and we need to take responsibility. So, what do I think is the biggest impact that Patagonia can have? I think it's really working to reform capitalism from within. And I think for us to do that, we've got to embrace decarbonizing our business and solving as many problems as we can within our own supply chain, all the way down to the factory floors that, that uh, where our product and our materials are made so that we have got the legitimacy to also influence externally and, and have a point of view and provide leadership on these topics. So that, that's, that's, that's what I think we need to focus on. That's why, and, that's, and it's because what's at stake, I think, is, is the very future of humanity. And so I think for us to do that, we've got to make tougher decisions about the product we make. We've developed new metrics for measuring the success and keeping score of our business. We're decoupling ourselves from traditional financial metrics and focusing much more on impact metrics. And then we've developed a tool that we call an EPNL, an environmental profit and loss statement. And it gives us visibility to individual product decisions that we make in a much more surgical way and really the good and the bad that can come from these products. And so... Um, you know, and then we're going to use this knowledge to solve the biggest problems that we can identify in our supply chain. We're going to tax ourselves and we're going to use that money to fund innovations that, that continue to solve these problems. We're going to scale those innovations and then we're going to continue to use our voice to both call people out and call people in, depending on what's most effective and impactful. That's really fascinating. There has historically been a tradition of almost like philanthropic capitalism, hasn't there? For for want of a better phrase, but that is definitely out of fashion now. Um, to to the point that even talking about it can feel very naive and idealistic, you know. Um, but it's really fascinating to hear you talk about it on those two levels, you know, that like practical, operational level, but also like the existential, philosophical level, if you like, you know. Because I was going to ask you about 
yeah, you know, the metrics of capitalism, obviously we don't need to talk about those now. We all know what they are, but finding those new metrics to measure success in that context as a, as a company in your position is obviously really interesting and, and the potential, yeah, to sort of change the conversation and to show that kind of leadership because yeah, you know, God, even today on the news in the UK where I am, like new oil rigs being opened in the North Sea, you know, like new coal mines being opened and that that's the reality that we face, you know, that and that and that's the argument is always capitalism. It's always like, well, that's what we do. That's how we, you know, what, what are you gonna do? Stop the economy. Yeah, it's such a it's such a false set of choices. Sorry to cut you off, but it's just such a bullshit argument. You know, I I am here in California and I was last six years in 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 Amsterdam. Um and so I, I mentioned that because I was in and out of Schiphol Airport all the time in, in Amsterdam and and, be, and um, Shell Oil being a Dutch company, you know, they they advertise throughout the airport. And, you know, you'd be walking through a part of it and you'd see big signs about wind farms from Shell. And, you'd, you know, basically the message, whatever the words were, the message was climate change solved. You're welcome. Shell oil, you know that that's really what they were trying to convince you of. And it's total bullshit. And, and we all know it. And and. Um, I think it's just time that we get really honest about the impact that we're having. I think, you know, going back to where we started about swimming in a sea of contradictions, you know, look, I, I have spent a lot of my life far too much on airplanes. Um, I've convinced myself at times that that was a necessary evil for us having an impact and being part of the conversation. Was it right? Was it wrong? I don't know. But those were the choices I made. And those are the choices a lot of us make. We're an imperfect business, but we're deeply, deeply committed to these issues. And I think that that's, a, you know, I think that makes us like a lot of individuals, perhaps not enough companies. And I think all of that's got to change, but we got to get really honest with ourselves and we got to stop the finger pointing exclusively. And we just got to figure out how we solve these problems. Patagonia is a privately owned company, though. Is it is it different for for shareholder owned companies, operated companies that, that necessarily, you know, in the in the system that are necessarily beholden to that for right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, is it different? Yeah, of course it's different. We've got really enlightened ownership. And so I think it is different. I think that different does not mean, you know, it's not binary. It's not, it's easy for us and it's impossible for others. I, I, I get that question directly or indirectly, seemingly every time I speak anywhere, particularly in a business setting. And one of the great, you know, sort of, I, I think Rose, our former CEO, um, I think she recognized something that was interesting but i think recognizing it was not the hard part i think operationalizing it and doing something with it was and, and that was that when patagonia was two three hundred million dollars it was a great story it was inspiring to some people that knew the story but it wasn't in a position to be transformational for part of the reason that you that i think your question gets to we weren't we didn't have scale we didn't have size we didn't have visibility and we couldn't kind of prove that you know it was this nice little southern california company great story thank you very much um what else and I think that, uh, you know, she she recognized that if we could become more visible, we could provide more leadership, we could prove that you could do well by doing good, that we could have more influence. And she, again, it was more than the insight. It was bringing that to life that I think um, was the hard work. And, and that's happened over the last five, six, seven years. I don't think by growing twice as big now, we can be twice as impactful. I think that there's a sweet spot where, you know, it's a law of diminishing returns and you get to a certain size and scale. and I don't think growth gets you twice as good, um, twice as impactful. And so I feel like now it's about constantly ensuring that we're living up to our own high principles and expectations of ourselves. 
and then proving to other businesses that this can be done. And so I think the issue of ownership, I think it's a convenient excuse for publicly traded companies that are constantly looking for convenient excuses. I think it's a total lack of creativity and a lack of commitment. Um, but I also recognize that we have got really unique ownership and that puts, you know, it's a competitive advantage. Well, I, I, you know, again, if, if what you've outlined, it, that's how it's going to have to change, isn't it? From individual companies leading the way to, to sort of almost demonstrate a different form of success, you know, which isn't, which isn't just a profit margin, which isn't. And again, it comes down to that contradict contradictory slash conundrum theme you know not just to this conversation but which is a constant in the wider conversation of of yeah you know acknowledging that you need to balance that as a business in the system but also show a different way because as you say it, sh- it shouldn't be a binary conversation should it it shouldn't be like it should be possible to 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 run a business and try and affect change in the way that you're talking about at the minute it's kind of a zero-sum game isn't it it's like well you're either that or you're that and clearly that isn't going to solve anything other than lead continue continues on the path that we're on now. Yeah. I mean, there's just a few things that I find so funny and you hear them all the time. And there's these, there are these contradictions that I think just kind of need to be talked about a little bit more. One is, you know, I think the, one of the greatest titles that people like to either bestow upon themselves or have bestowed upon them is that of leader. And, you know, they love to, to, you know, quote, lead when um, you know, the crowd's receptive and, and, the, and the decisions are fairly easy, but that's not leadership. I mean, leadership's making the tough decisions when no one's watching and having to really will those things to life and, um, and not, the, not the cheap wins and the, you know, the, the sort of empty calories. And, and I think that there's such a contradiction across the business world on that. Everybody wants to be called a leader, but then as quickly as you say, well, you know, how are you thinking about this issue? What's your response? That's oh, too difficult. It's too complex. You know, it's not possible. And, you know, force the conversations together where, you know, you're, you're this, you're this wise leader and yet you can't solve these, you know, some of the, you can't contribute to the solution of some of the biggest problems we face often problems that you're contributing to the cause of. Um, so I, I find that just to be, you know, a, a total bullshit and, and you hear it all the time. I think the other thing that you hear and I, you know, I sort of focus my, my strongest comments towards social media, you know, when we were, when we were engaging with some of the social media platforms, particularly Facebook, the narrative was always this. If you were talking to them about paid advertising, they would tell you they had an algorithm, algorithm that could do basically anything you wanted. That was when they were trying to talk money out of you. And then you would talk to them about their responsibility and accountability, and they would describe the algorithm like it was some beast chained in the in the basement that they had no control over. And it just did what it did. And it's like, you know, why don't we get our salespeople and our, you know, and our and our leadership together and let's have one conversation? Because which is it? And, you know, I think that that's just a microcosm of so much of what we see in the business world. Well, it, it, you're talking about disingenuousness, which is writ large right now i mean it is it's it's like it's one of the things i've been thinking last year it's just like basically seems to be the the constant theme of public life like you know like an inability to be straight or honest about anything you know like and that's that's almost like a, a perfect example isn't it like oh yeah we can't do anything about that which we try to sell you i mean that's that is that is capitalism essentially isn't it right there yeah it's fascinating I think it is. And I think that, you know, I don't know what it, I mean, part of it, I think is, you know, comes from pretty, 
pretty historical places, which is, is just a desire to make as much money and amass as much power as you can. I think part of it may be in a response to a heightened level of transparency that exists today. People are asking tougher questions. I'm a big believer, and this is super simple to say, but it takes a lot of work to stick to, you know, if in doubt, tell the truth. I mean, life's a lot simpler when you don't have to remember what lie you spun yesterday. And, you know, I think what comes with that is a real obligation to take head on some of your shortcomings, some of the bigger problems that you know exist and haven't solved, the mistakes you make. I mean, I'm as imperfect as any human being. And um, I think just embracing that, but being really deeply committed to doing the very best that you can, I think is is kind of more of a, a posture that I think we need to adopt, particularly as leaders within business. Yeah, I mean, it's almost to the point these days where anyone that actually does tell the truth in public, it's almost like a revolutionary act, isn't it? You know, it's it's so rare. It's but I mean, it's it, we're laughing, but it's it's true, you know. And that that that's comes back to that thing we were talking about, like almost the idealism of it of actually being straight and actually addressing these things head on still has power, definitely, and and still, like you say, that that is probably as good a definition of leadership as as any really. Um. I'm I'm interested in in your story if that's all right. I'm sure you've told it many many times, but um, I, you know it's always always good to find out how people got to the position they're in. Um, your your background's obviously been in this industry since since day one, right? And you're from Florida, grew up surfing. That's right. Um, our mutual friend. Yeah, I grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and um, I grew up around surfing. I mean, I surfed. You know, was in the ocean always from a young age. I I would I I really love surfing, and I'm about as poor a surfer as you're going to find for somebody who's grown up around as long as I have and been around as many people who do it at such a high level as I have. So I, I'd never, you know, I'm super reluctant to describe myself as a surfer. I grew up skateboarding and then got into snowboarding and then got into climbing. And that was kind of my sort of how I, I work through different sports. And that was, so that, that was the passion that drove it originally. Was it, cause it's so common in the industry, you know, people that basically like have those passions and then look around and think, well, how am I going to, how am I going to do more of this? And then the next thing you know, you've got a career. You know, is that was that how it was for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, here's how it went for me. I grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida. It's a small town, uh, beachside town on the Atlantic Ocean. And um, I grew up with a lot of people. And my brother was one of them whose lives were totally defined by surfing. And, and mine wasn't. At that time, it was skateboarding. And, you know, I grew up with people who went on to become professional surfers. I grew up with people who to this day rep in the in the space because they love surfing and the lifestyle. I grew up with people who were entrepreneurs in the space and some of whom did very well. And I grew up with people who bartend to this day so that they have the flexibility and freedom to to surf. And um, so it was kind of the full gamut. And what what I was super inspired by from a young age was god what would it be like to mix your passion with your career and i didn't honestly know what that passion was going to be i just knew that if i could ever figure it out that you know and then i could combine that with a career that was you couldn't do better than that and um so i i went from skateboarding to snowboarding i moved out to salt lake city right after university I studied business because I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do when I grew up. And to be honest with you, I don't mean to be funny, but in some ways I still don't. You know, I just continue to sort of move towards things that I think would be interesting. And and so I, I moved out to the mountains with snowboarding and I went climbing one day and um, I went with a friend, good friend. And um, we both, after that one day of climbing on top rope in Salt Lake, both went down to REI, bought a pair of shoes, bought a harness, bought a blade of ice, bought a chalk bag. 
And to this day, that was I don't know, 25 years ago, I think he's still got this. And if we went climbing, he's still got the same pair of shoes that he's probably climbed a dozen times or less. I've climbed for 25 years all around the world just to find my life. And um, whatever it was, the light switch just flipped. And, and I was I just felt like this is it. And I'll spend the rest of my life just within this sport and this culture and, um, you know, in one way or another. And so I found out that Black Diamond was based in Salt Lake City. And, you know, I had finished an MBA at that time. I had six years of education and I, I had, you know, done a few things professionally, but nothing meaningful at all and had no idea what I wanted to do. I was waiting tables and, and climbing and snowboarding. That's what I was doing. Um, and I dropped off a, a, a resume, a CV unsolicited. And less than a week later, I got a phone call from, from Black Diamond and I thought, oh, right on, you know, they've never seen anybody on paper that's quite as impressive as I am. You know, so they're, they're right <laughs> on top of it. And they called me up and they said, you know, we, we'd like to talk to you about a job. And I said, yeah, right on, here we go. And they said, you know, we've got an opening in our warehouse, um, picking inventory off a shelf and, uh, you know, it pays almost $6 an hour. And, you know, we'd like to offer it to you. And, and I, and I honestly thought, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but like, did, uh, are you sure that you <laughs> got the right guy called the person you intended to know? <laughs> and they were like, yep, no, we're sure. And, you know, I mean, that's how it is here. You work your way up when, you know, if, if you're into it, we'd, we'd love to talk to you. And if you're not, we understand. And so I went down there and talked to them and I, you know, I, they made it clear to me that they would be willing to let me pick inventory in the warehouse, but I couldn't pack, you know, that I had to be trained to do. And I had packed boxes in the skateboard warehouse at 16 years old. And so it was pretty humbling, but I took the job. And and you stayed with Black Diamond for quite a while, right? After that? Yeah, I was there over a 15 year period. So I worked four years. I, I spent a bit of time in the warehouse at the beginning, and then I moved up into the operations department and did a variety of things there. And I was there for four years. And then you know, on the side, I was um, I was involved with some attorneys. Um, it's a longer story, but I had done some some volunteer work with the American Civil Liberties Union. I was volunteering a fair bit with some prisoners um, in in Utah and also uh, someone on death row in Alabama. And then I was doing Sunday mornings. I was working with some attorneys to give legal advice to the homeless population in Salt Lake. And so it was just a set of interests that I had outside of climbing and work and everything. And so. Through that, I applied to law school and and I thought I was, you know, really wanted to be a civil rights attorney and it's a three year full time program and I got accepted. And so it's kind of an inflection point. Do I stay at Black Diamond and try to, you know, move this forward or do I go in a completely different direction? So I, I jumped and I went to to law school and um, about two weeks into a three year program, I realized two things. One is this is the best decision I ever made. And number two, there's no way in hell I'm going to be an attorney. Um, so I'm just going to, I'm going to study the things that I find interesting. I'm going to squeeze every bit of value and interest out of all this. And then I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And so I studied over here in Europe, European union law, um, one summer, and I studied in China, Chinese legal systems, um, for another summer. And I, um, then decided I was going to move to China and didn't really know what I was going to do there. And so I went back to black diamond and started lobbying them to set something up in China and to hire me to do it. And that's what ended up happening. So I spent five years in China. Then I came back and looked after um, global supply chain for for BD. And then when we took the company public, ended up becoming the president of the brand and, and looking after all product sales and marketing for the last uh, two and a half years I was there. That's a great thumbnail sketch. Why why China? What was the interest? Obviously, you, you said that quite 
um was that a personal interest was it a business opportunity like why what what was the what was the thinking there yeah i mean it wasn't so much a business opportunity i think it was so i i had climbed in thailand i think it was in 2000 when i made my first trip to asia and and it was to climb in thailand and then on that trip i was working at bd at the time i I went over and did some work in hong kong and southeast china and just got my first sort of look at that whole part of the world and I, i just thought it was so dynamic and so wide open so it kind of planted a seed and then when i studied over there it was more of the same and i was just at a point in my life where i didn't know what i wanted to do exactly but i knew I just wanted to follow things that felt like they'd be really adventurous and fun. I was climbing a lot at that time, and there's so much great climbing and so much undeveloped climbing in that part of the world, China specifically, but just kind of all over Asia. And so it was a confluence of things. And again, it was also just this total certainty that I didn't want to be an attorney. So I was kind of fleeing that, trying to figure out what else to do. And so, you know, I made this pitch and and I just thought it'd be the Wild West over there. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't think about setting up something that became quite big and complex for Black Diamond. I was thinking about like living in Yongshuo, which is a small climbing community of limestone cars and, and you know, coordinating some work over there and in between climbing and stuff. And, um, you know, the good news was the opportunity came together. The bad news was it became a much bigger opportunity than I had ever really planned for. And so... You know, I was working a ton and um, any free time I had, I was traveling around and, and a lot of it was spent climbing. Wow. That sounds like a great period. I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in, you brushed over it quite quickly. Um, would you be up for talking a little bit more about the, the ACLU work that you mentioned and, and the, the, you mentioned doing some work with uh, inmates on death row? Like, was that a personal interest? It's a very sort of reductive way of putting it, but like, wh- where did that come from? Because obviously that's, you know, that's, that's a form of, I guess you could call it activism, but it's, it's quite a choice to, to sort of give up your time to, to, to do that, to follow that path. So where, where was that coming from? I think, I think it was coming from a few places. I mean, you know, again, I, I've always kind of pursued things that I find interesting period. So I think that's part of it. I think in this case, it came also from the intersection of some personal experiences. I had a, a sister, a younger sister who was murdered. And, and that was a really heavy personal experience. And it sort of it put me on a journey to try to really understand just a lot of things that, um, that at that time were, that were hard to make sense of. And I think, you know, part of that process was coming full circle and really understanding a little bit more and confronting a little bit more, just a slice of society and slice of humanity that I, that I didn't 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 understand well and 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 felt like in some way that I think I even find today hard to describe or hard to articulate it felt like that was that was a journey I had to go on I guess and so you know through that I I I signed up to volunteer with the American Civil Liberties Union um it just so I didn't do that with the goal of working with prisoners or inmates or in the prison system or anything else it it at that time in Utah, where, which is where I was at, there was a lot of need around a particular set of issues. There was this device that the prison was using to restrain uh, inmates. Um, it was being misused. One of the inmates was killed in that process. And so the ACLU was deeply involved in this. And that was kind of the nexus of, of interacting in that space. And that led to spending time in the prison system directly with inmates, with attorneys doing some investigative work. And that just kind of, you know, it just kept sort of building until I was working with some other, some other activists um, on anti-death penalty work. Um, 
Um, and that brought me to a specific inmate case in, in Alabama. And actually, interestingly enough, brought me to um, dropping by the office, which was a really small, I don't know, it was a couple of people worked in it, I think, at the time of, of Brian Stevenson and, and the Equal Justice Initiative, which has is, is gone on to do, just do amazing work. Um, and that was, was kind of in the early days when I was in Montgomery, Alabama, um, you know, visiting death row in, in, in Alabama. So initially it was, by the sounds of it, a way of trying to understand what must have obviously been like a horrendously traumatic experience to, to try and channel that positively if that if that's not too crass a way of putting it yeah i think it, you know as, as young people do i think trying to make sense of it initially just really trying to make sense of it and then i think from there yeah trying to find something positive and it informs my you know my opinions on the death penalty that that remain my opinions today which is you know i think it's so often framed as a question of you know does this person deserve to die and i think that's the wrong way of framing the question the way to frame the question is is do we deserve to impose that penalty and i don't believe we do as humans and that's you know different people will have different opinions on that that's mine well informed by some hard-earned experience by the sound of it so at what point did you um just to just to shift it along a little bit at what point did you um end up at Patagonia? Um, I had been at, at Black Diamond, as we talked about, over this 15-year period, and things had things had changed pretty profoundly. Um, and I think it just felt like the the brand was at a an inflection point and was moving in, in a bit of a different direction. And so it, it was definitely time to step out. Um, I had been inspired by Patagonia for, you know, my, as long as I had known of its existence, I, I considered it kind of the gold standard in the industry for a lot of things and not just environmental leadership. That was clearly part of it, but it was also just service and, and storytelling and just really kind of being interwoven within the communities of, of sports that it, you know, exists to serve. And so I was, I was really inspired by it. It was interesting coming to Europe so often in different roles I had at Black Diamond and feeling like, Patagonia hadn't really kind of unlocked the opportunity and hadn't really gotten interwoven in the communities um, here in Europe. And, and I never really understood why. And so my wife and I, you know, I had met my wife in, in Asia and then uh, we had lived in, in the U.S. And um, I think we just made a really concerted decision that we wanted to move to Europe a little bit like the decision I'd made to move to China previously. And so it was more focused on that than it was a job. And I was moving in that direction and uh, thought about whether I wanted to stay in the industry or do something else. I, I realized, and again, I think these moments can be really valuable, you know, moments of rare space to kind of do some soul searching about what's most important to you. And I sort of renewed my vows to this industry, felt like, God, there's just nowhere else I want to be. And um, so that was that was that was a nice sort of realization, I guess, and, and was focused on Europe, was thinking about doing something else. And then the opportunity came to, um, to join Patagonia in this role. And I, I, you know, it's weird to feel like you've had the professional highlight of your career when you're still working, but my six years in Europe were just amazing, you know, working with that team and, um, and helping to make some small impact perhaps on the culture of the organization in Europe and the team and and really feeling like we started to have an impact on some issues that that were really important to us and really important to communities in different parts of Europe and certainly really really personally important to me yeah could you expand upon that because I know you're really passionate about some of the specific campaigns that are going on in Europe right now be interesting to hear you talk about those a little bit yeah I mean I think the the work that we've been involved with that sort of the umbrella campaign has been uh, the blue heart of Europe which is you know Europe's um 
dammed and diverted basically every water system across the continent. The only exceptions in all of, you know, if you use the broader definition of Europe, are Russia and the Balkan Peninsula. And in the Balkans, it's, you know, for reasons that we probably, it's probably obvious, which is with all the conflict there in, in recent decades, um, you know, those rivers, you know, one of the, the silver linings to that period, unfortunately, is in some ways that those rivers have been protected. And that's the good news. The, the flip side of that is there's over 3,000 hydropower projects that are currently queued up in different stevel, levels of or stages of planning and development across the Balkans. And, um, and, you know, if we make the same mistakes there that we've made across so much of the rest of the Western world, Europe, the United States, North America and elsewhere, you know, those rivers are gone. And with it, all of Europe's wild and free flowing rivers are gone. And, you know, um, we did a film back in, I don't think it was 2014 called Damnation, which was very much a North American point of view, a U.S. point of view on um, not just the impacts of hydropower that was part of it, but also what, you know, been termed deadbeat dams. These dams get built. And then when they when their useful life expires, nobody wants to take them down. Nobody wants to take responsibility for them um, because they're really, really expensive and complicated to remove. And so that was kind of also a big part of the narrative. And so we started looking in Europe and trying to understand what the landscape was on these topics. And, and that brought us to the Balkans. And then we spent time in the region, a number of us in traveling and seeing some of these rivers, whether it's the Viosa that travels unimpeded today from the mountains of Greece through uh, Albania to the Adriatic Sea for 272 kilometers unimpeded by hydropower. Um, you know, that's, it's one of the crown jewels of Europe and it's, and it's, you know, it's not a river, it's not an area that many people know about. Um, or the Una River in Bosnia and Herzegovina and, and others um, across the whole region and, and, and saw the impacts, what was at stake, what was there to protect, but also what would be lost in the way of, of biodiversity, but also the impacts on communities. And I think about the Viosa River, which is under threat right now, and we're campaigning heavily for it right now with the Albanian uh, national elections on April 25th. We feel like we've got an opportunity to to protect this area and what we're advocating for. And we're doing it with organizations on the front lines, Riverwatch, Euronator, Eco Albania, Client Earth, um, is the establishment of Europe's first wild river national park. And, and that's possible, we can do this. And Albania can provide leadership in the region and Albania can provide leadership in Europe. And Albania has got the opportunity to provide leadership on this topic globally. Um, and it's just such a unique opportunity. And if we get this right, this can be the foundation for how we think about things like this going forward. And if we get it wrong, it's just one more set of communities who have lived historically on the banks of these rivers who are relocated and forced out. And it's all the surrounding biodiversity that depends on that area that is wiped, wiped away as well. And so that, that's what's at stake. Quite emblematic, really, isn't it, as, as, a, as a cause? you know obviously the you know on every level like the effect that it'll have on that local community local environment and also what it says about again you know to bring it back to the wider discussion how how we live and and how how we let capitalism dictate how we live really because obviously all these projects that you describe as is made clear from the various films and 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 the work that you guys have been doing is is led by private industry essentially um for no other reason section there with private industry and government i think that one of the things you know when we think you know bigger about our role and, and where we can have an impact you know i'd like to see hydropower just delisted as renewable energy it's the only renewable energy source and, and i use that term loosely 
that's that's driving communities away from their historical homes and driving you know biodiversity to extinction. So I don't I don't think it's renewable at all. Um, and, but it's, you know, it's classified that way. And so as a result of that, you've got kind of a government in infrastructure and incentives to continue to facilitate it. I do think we're starting to see on this topic in the Balkans, the winds shift. I just don't know if they'll shift fast enough um, and far enough. We've seen the, both the president and the prime minister of Albania commit and, and you know, offer sound bites, I should say, in support of a Viosa River National Park. And then they've taken none of the follow-up steps to kind of put that in place. We've just seen the newly elected leader of Kosovo take a position on this as well. We're seeing environmentalists, celebrities, and others from around the world, you know, really try to kind of come to the aid of this issue. Uh, ultimately, it's got to be led by people on the front lines. We're here to support that and amplify their voices and help provide uh, you know, support in any way we can but it's got to be done through the lens of those that are going to be most impacted. I've got one more question for you. So obviously you've made, it's been really interesting hearing you talk about like the root of your career and the, you know, it sounds like you've been playing the short game in terms of rather than a long game, rather than having this like, you know, big end ambition that you were working towards more like taking these opportunities as they arose and, and, and where you were at personally as well. So with that in mind, I imagine you didn't join Patagonia thinking or expecting to end up in the position that you're in now um so we surprised that it panned out this way that you've ended up in this position yeah i mean i super surprised and super humbled by it you know i mean i i, I had the opportunity to meet rose our former ceo before I, I joined patagonia i think that um you know she she left a really profound she had a really profound impact on on patagonia on its people on our mission, I think she developed, um, you know, she's really, really been instrumental in sort of pushing activism into the very center of, of why we exist. I think in many ways at a necessity. Um, I think that, um, so I think the opportunity to lead this organization is, is one that I'm incredibly humbled by, really excited by, and wake up every day just kind of motivated to figure out, you know, how can we create an environment where everybody that's a part of this brand um, you know, it's people that work for Patagonia, but also it's it's our community. How can we kind of get us all pulling in the same direction to accomplish great things? Again, as I said before, I think our history is littered with us doing our best work when the stakes were at their highest. And there has never been a point in time where that's more true than it is right now. And so I think we've got, you know, we've we've got the need is huge. I think everybody knows that. And I think for us, it's figuring out how do we focus what we've got to offer so that we can have the biggest impact. And I think ultimately, you know, it's two things in, in simple form. It's it's continuing to really push ourselves and running the most responsible business we can. And then I think the scorecard that really matters is how can we have an impact on planetary health and how can we help both protect but also restore degraded areas? How can we do that in partnership with communities that are on the front lines and most impacted? And how can we change the system and ultimately in doing that prove from the bowels of business that business can exist to do more than maximize shareholder wealth? And we can just redefine the expectations that businesses have of themselves, that people have of businesses and, and governments. You know, if there's a need for regulation, then let's embrace that. And if there's if we can outperform you know, those low bars um, as a as a sector, then, you know, all the more inspiring, but whatever tool it takes or series of them, we got to, we've got to move, we've got to move right now, we've got to move with a sense of commitment and creativity. And so I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of it. 
So there you go. That was me and Ryan. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Big thanks to Ryan for the candor and openness he showed during that chat and for helping to explain how his own personal history has shaped him and uh, guided the way he finds himself on today. It's going to be really, really interesting to see if he can achieve those enormous ambitions that he outlined there, really. Anyway, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find the entire Type 2 back catalogue over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. You're going to find the entire back catalogue of my podcast, Looking Sideways, as well, while you're at it. You're going to find over 150 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. You'll also be able to find information about my new book, Looking Sideways, Volume 1, which is a visual exploration of Californian board sports culture by myself and photographer Owen Tozer that chronicles our trip from Ventura to San Diego in an attempt to understand how Californian board sports culture has shaped the world and informs our perspective on California today. If you like the podcast, I think you probably quite like the book, so head on over to www.wearelookingsideways.com for that and much more. So thanks for listening and for supporting Type 2 generally. I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so. Been a bit of a longer gap this time while I set this one up through my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, I'm on now, if Alexa's your thing, all the podcast purveyors. Um, Yeah, thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Nice one.